Meow. This is Tanya Todd, writer, producer, and soon-to-be director of Morning Sacrifice, a tragic romance where a vampire poses as a detective to help the woman he loves search for her missing husband. This sensuous detective noir short film explores how even the most altruistic love can turn monstrous. If this story strikes a titillating nerve, or if you simply love vampires, consider contributing to our crowdfunder at seedandspark.com. Funding for this film is supported in part by Nevada Arts Council and National Endowment of the Arts, but we still have a long way to go. Check out our enticing incentives. Pick the choice that excites you most. Join me, and we shall make a dark and delicious love story. That's Morning Sacrifice at seedandspark.com. Meow and welcome to Banned Books Conversations, where radical readers discuss prohibited prose. I'm your host, Tanya Todd, and we're here to talk about banned books, literary works that have been removed from a library shelf or school curriculum. Over the course of Banned Books Week, we've been discussing seven different books, the reasons they were banned, and the value in reading them. We've reached our last book in the series, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. In addition to starred reviews from Booklist, Kirkus, School Library Journal, The Hate You Give won Coretta Scott King Honor, a Prince Honor, the William C. Morris Award, and was also longlisted for the National Book Award. This novel sat atop the New York Times bestseller list for 50 weeks and is consistently among the most challenged books in America. But before we get to that, let's meet today's radical readers. Ron, please tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, my name is Ron Smith. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I, for years, I was a, a college professor teaching algebra and economics. Uh, I studied urban economics, so I feel very closely related to this book in a lot of ways, uh, studying communities. Uh, I also work in music. I curate concerts, work with... Uh, soul and jazz artist and uh, executive produce albums. And Allison? Hi, I'm Allison. Um, many of you may know me. I'm a co-host at Femon along with Tanya, and I'm also a writer of screenplays and essays and a host of the show Where I'm From on Instagram Live, where I host um, different writers and creatives, and we have over 110 episodes, people sharing their poems. Um, so if you're interested, come check it out. And Stephen. I'm Stephen Skenendork, uh, coming from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I've been a cop for just over 15 years now. I'm a lieutenant down here. Um, most of my career is like in different training, uh, training cops as they're coming out of the academy um, for, geez, I guess, three, four years, another three, four years of investigations, um, and now that's what I'm doing now is kind of supervising investigations for a part of our city. Excellent. So we'll start with you, Allison. What is it about the Bayern Books conversation that interests you? I am definitely a believer. When I see a book is banned, I know that it has something interesting in it that I need to read immediately because it's making people feel things that are uncomfortable for them. And I'm interested in why that is. I think 
if some, it was interesting hearing you talk about the hate you give and how it was on the bestseller list for 50 weeks and how it is also one of the most banned books. And I think that is because it is so easy to pick up and read. It's so accessible. I've read the book three times and I enjoy it every time. And I think lots of times banned books, not only the topic, but the way they tap into that topic is so accessible and people find that threatening. And I'm, I'm curious about learning what, what is so threatening about it. How about you, Stephen? Uh, for me, I, I think it really gives us insight into the power of books themselves. You know, for me, I, you know, I read a lot and I, I, I really feel the power of books, but when you see that governments or, you know, incredibly powerful organizations or whatever the case is, uh, try to ban a book, you kind of, for me, that's puts its finger like kind of right on the issue of how powerful a book can be uh, to individuals or for an idea um, and how powerful ideas can be you know, that you find in those books. So for me, that's what's interesting. And Ron. Yeah, I'm piggybacking on Allison. It's funny that I would pull up a book, a list of the books that have been banned. And I discovered that most of those books, when I was a kid, those are the books that I really gravitated toward. For like, I looked, I saw Fahrenheit 451 was one of the books that had been banned. I loved that book when I was a kid. Uh, the Catcher in the Rye, um, uh, The Bluest Eye. I mean, there were so many books that I, I said, there's a reason that I clearly gravitate toward the things that are making people think. And that's, this is uh, what makes these books sex sexy to me, so. <laughs> Stephen, have you had an experience with a book that offended you? And if so, how did that affect you? So I don't think that I've had an experience like that where I can say, okay, this book offended me and walked away from, but I can tell you, I'm Native American. I, I grew up on a reservation just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I can tell you, uh, growing up, maybe I didn't notice it as much. Certainly I notice it now when I read history books that talk about uh, manifest destiny, that talk about, oh, these folks uh, settled here first. You know, this kind of language of, um, oh, the reason why, you know, Native Americans died is this virgin soil pandemic and there's and there's no responsibility behind that. Like these types of ideas that I'll sometimes see in history books <laughs> really kind of set me off. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I, I can't put my finger on a book, but a lot of history books say those types of things that really bother me and are, and are, and are just historically wrong as well. You know? So, yeah, that is such a good point. Like, history books, the stuff that we're taught in school, that's very offensive because of how wrong they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Can I piggyback on that too? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I always talk about the fiction that is masked as nonfiction being what really, that's really what offends me. You know, when you, you sit there and read a history book and you realize it's a half truth or a lie. Um, and, and that's the offensive part to me. And that's usually when I go and try to do more research, you know, I was like, okay, this is not complete. And, and, and so I'm, I'm with you, Stephen, on that, um, you know, and manifest destiny is the perfect, uh, is the perfect example. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this, Allison? I agree with both Stephen and Ron, that feeling of, and it's interesting because people, states are changing their textbooks, right, to reflect different views of, like, say, enslavement, 
there's a big debate about that and that that they don't a lot of people same people who are banning these books don't want there to be a conversation about how enslavement built the financial capital of this nation you know they want to have it be some conversation about something else <laughs> so i i think that part of the reason they ban these books is because these books are in tandem with these ideas right so they're changing the textbooks and then they also want to ban these books so that there's less so you can't find these ideas and i i'm with Stephen and ron like the books that offend me are just books that feel wrong to me that are misrepresenting groups of people obviously women that one hits me a lot um i mean books i don't i don't like ernest hemingway you know i don't find him like i'm gonna throw the book across the room but i don't really want to read about how rape is fun for ladies you know if they just give in to their animal impulses or whatever we can read in a lot of these greatest american novels I'm not interested in that. So I, I don't want to ban the book. I don't want to hate it, but I also don't want to read it. And that's my choice to not read it. So Allison, is there a scenario where you think banning a book is the correct course of action? I don't think so. I mean, I think because of us talking here, like if you ban a book, then your the relationship to it changes. People get interested in it for a different reason. And, and I just, like it's up to us and it's up. And as a parent, I can talk to my kids about books that are available. And honestly, the stuff on like TikTok is way more incendiary than any book they're going to pick up. Like I would much rather they pick up a book and think about these ideas and discuss them with me than watch a bunch of, you know, people on TikTok talking about how it's a really hard time to be a white man. Like that's way more disturbing to me than any book they can pick up. How about you, Ron? You know, it's it's funny. Um, uh, I thought about when you just asked the question. I thought about uh, years ago. I was reading a book, uh, "The Forty Eight Laws of Power," and I don't know if you ever read that that book, but um, in it, it lists all these different ways that you can manipulate a situation or handle something. And um, and I was in a, I had a restaurant, and I left my book on the counter to go fix, uh, I don't know if you know the civil rights leader, uh, Reverend Joseph Lowry, but I'm fixing his food. And he's one of these elderly uh, pastors that came from the civil rights movement. And when I got back with his food, he had been flipping through my book and he said, uh, son, this book is pure evil. And, and I said, yes, sir, there are some ideas in the book that are evil, but isn't it important for me to know these things, not to use them, but to learn on learn about how to handle them when they're per perpetrated against me. And and he, to his credit, was like, hey, that's a great point. Let's talk more about the book. And so we literally spent that afternoon going through the different laws that that uh that could be used against you. And mm -hmm. so and I say I like to say that even though something might not be exactly aligned with your way of thinking or your way of living, it's still a tool that you can use to better yourself. So I would never ban a book just because I didn't necessarily agree with it. I would use it as a tool that it can be. Mein Kampf, you know, I mean, understanding why other people are interested in Mein Kampf is important. Um, even though I'm not sitting there going, yay, Hitler, you know.
So, or Heil Hitler. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Stephen? You know, I, I'm really glad he brought up those two examples uh, because I thought, all right, what, you know, what are some books that are, are like just outrageously offensive that exist and that have some popularity? I thought of Mein Kampf. Turner Diaries, maybe, right, that's used for uh, different uh, extremist groups as kind of some inspiration for doing some of the things that they've done. Uh, you know, Machiavelli, I'm sure, is in that but the book, The 48 Laws of Power. I, I know the book you're talking about. Um, certainly a banned book over history. Um, and I cannot say that I would want any of those banned, you know, because I, when I think of the purpose of history and even the existence of a Mein Kampf, for example, this is the, the purpose of history is to learn. And so we play those same types of, uh, if the history comes back toward us and something's looking like it, we can, we can kind of learn from that and we can kind of make a different choice. We can make, go a different direction. And if you don't learn of uh, the power of potentially racism and anti-Semitism, you know, from those, those parts of history, I don't think that you're likely to succeed in making a better decision if we aren't learning from those things. So I, I can't think of one. I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, I, if somebody could come up with a way to, you know, in a book to say, hey, here's how you make a nuclear weapon. Maybe I'd, all of a sudden I might have a small little agreement that this should not be uh, so publicly out there. But but literature, no, I don't see it. So, Ron, we'll start with you this time. How does the concept of the slippery slope fit in with the desire to ban books? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you get to a point where you go, okay, where does it stop? I mean, you can pick one book that you think of as being very offensive. And like, I started looking at books that were banned and how and why they were banned, like To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, the use of the word nigger is the reason that they actually said we're banning this book or the, slur, or the racial slurs. But if a slur is necessary to actually explain a position or a point, how can you ban that book and where does it end? I mean, and so, and what words do you find offensive and it doesn't matter how the word is used. And so, yeah, it can really go down a terrible path if we allow it to. Um, and, and I think that's why we have to be err on the other side and that's, you know, stay open to the books that even we might find offensive, but at the same time, I think that just like a movie has a PG 13, I mean, I, I do believe that there's certain books that are more um, appropriate for age groups. You know, that's, I guess, a whole nother way of, I guess, you know, that, that is kind of lightly banning something, isn't it? You it's know, a saying, hey, this is not for an eight-year-old. not banning. Say, oh. All right, thank you. Yes, I stand corrected. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, that, you know, to be responsible, especially as you all, you know, parents and or people who work with kids, you know, I think there is some responsibility that we have to have in making sure that things are age-appropriate. So. You're a parent, Allison. What are your thoughts on this? Um, it's interesting because, so I, I don't have the statistics, but someone out there does. Many of these books are banned, like by a very small percentage of people. Like when you when you look at the breakdown, 
it's these special interest groups just really going after books, particularly in Florida and I think other states. Um, and I, it was interesting to you talking about age things because what is a big conversation around that is, is, is LGBTQ literature, right? That's a big flashpoint right now where we don't want young children. And this is a conversation I've had with some parents exposed to these ideas. I'm using scare quotes because these ideas are what? <laughs> um, that you are the gender or the orientation that you believe that you are. And to me, those aren't ideas, those are realities. And so I get even nervous around that kind of censorship because I do think there's a value being placed on it and that makes me uncomfortable. And the same conversation is happening around racism. You know, a lot of people saying, well, I want my child to be a child. I don't want them to have to be exposed to these ideas about racism. And it's like, well, okay, that's a lot of white privilege because everyone else is exposed to and living with the idea of racism. So I feel like the least I can do as a white parent is start talking about it with my kids, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just feel like a lot of these bands and this idea of a slippery slope, it's just people being uncomfortable and, and like, you got to get comfortable with the discomfort. Like if we want things to change, if we want a more equitable world, that's what we have to do. And I feel like a lot of people who are banning books and having these discussions actually aren't interested in that direction at all. And that's the point of the bans. And that's part of the reason it gets me so upset. Stephen. So I, I always get skeptical of any times, you know, somebody's making a slippery slope argument or I, I just, I just feel like this is, this is a false argument. What I mean is in every decision and every debate that we have, even, even within our own lives, we draw a line somewhere as to how far we're willing to go or, or where we're willing to stop. <laughs> this is what we do with all issues. And so this slippery slope argument makes it seem like you must go to the extremes of one or the other. And I think that that's, um, that's not that's delusional. That's inaccurate. I think that we we have a great deal of choice in where we choose to stop in certain issues, um, actually, in, in, in all issues. But um, so I so I do get skeptical of those things. Um, I think uh, you're right, uh, Allison, that there. I think we too often try to shield our loved ones from the uh from the suffering in the world especially young folks I don't I don't have any kids but uh a lot of times I'll you know I'll tell for example I'll tell cop stories somebody will ask me about different cop stories or different things and and it's the kids are very interested or the young folks are very interested and the parents are are, are really trying to like tell me to hey don't let them know yet there's evil in the world you know what I mean and so it's this it's this uh, tough thing to uh, to navigate uh, for them, I'm sure as well. But but I always kind of uh, you know choose to kind of to talk about it, to let complication in the world be be a topic that we discuss, uh, and and I'm okay with things being a little blurry, you know. So. So Allison, you mentioned that there's been a pattern in the themes of books that are getting banned recently. What do you think this pattern says about where we are as a society? Well, I feel like we're we're really divided, right? I mean, I'm not saying anything fresh there, but um, it seems like there's a lot of tension between this idea of like wokeness, you know, and then other people saying like, let's let things just be how they are. It's been working great. 
why do you need to mess it up? Um, and um, I think anything that's considered woke is being banned. And I think those things are, are things that are decentralizing white capitalist belief systems and people and straight, straight people too, cishet people. Like, so I think anything that's like decentralizing that narrative is seen as a threat. And particularly I think in the YA space because so many young people are reckoning with these ideas and a lot of kids who are raised in evangelical spaces and other spaces, but primarily evangelical spaces are not being exposed to these ideas at all, other than that they are, you know, sinful and wrong. And so they really want to just kind of remove these conversations from the zeitgeist. I have a question. You have a teenage child. When you, yes, when you, do you expose these kinds of uh, reading materials to your child? Yes. Yes. Okay. And from a young age and like, I mean, they've both been in a social justice book club. Like I really do walk the talk and we read stamped together and we talked about it and we've read, I mean, different queer literature together. And, and I think it makes for great conversations. Right. And, and I want my kids coming to me with these questions, right? Like mm -hmm. I also like, we live in very diverse areas. So I just would just really don't want my kids to be like that asshole, to be honest, like from a, right. from a fully like, selfish perspective right like i really don't want my kid to be like oh that guy oh yeah yeah now? i almost i almost <laughs> referenced the character in the book <laughs> right but, uh, <laughs> right right she's a perfect example exactly exactly yeah. so i've lost the question <laughs> i think we're talking about the what this pattern says about where we are as a society the the themes that yep. are getting Band. Do you want to continue with that, Ron? Well, yeah, what's interesting is, um, you know, as I said before, uh, in school, my major was economics, urban economics. And at the school that I attended, um, it was not in the business program. It was in the social, it was in the arts and sciences department. And it was because it was treated as a social science. So we were very much aligned with the sociology majors and the psychology majors and the history majors. And and you realize that all of these social sciences kind of get back to the same thing. And that is, you know, people taking as much information as they can to make decisions that, you know, that hopefully work in their own self-interest and in the betterment of our society. Um, and you discover that typically the bad decisions are made because people will come in with ignorance and they make decisions that aren't in, their, aren't in anyone's uh, interest. Um, and, and I think that when we talk about things like, because what we've been kind of moving around this, throughout this whole conversation is critical race theory and this whole idea of, you know, teaching people uh, what was and, and with the attempt uh, that, or the mindset that if they understand what was, they can understand what's going to be. Um, and so there is like this battle and Allison was speaking to it, like this conflict, this battle that, that's actually between people who want to be, um, uh, knowledgeable and other people who understand the power of ignorance and there is a power in ignorance. So, so that is what we're talking about right here. And that's what I think so much of this book was about as well. It's just, you know, it's a lot, it's safer sometimes to stay ignorant, but ignorance is not bliss. Mm -hmm. So, 
Stephen. That's for sure. Uh, I think both of you guys kind of hit on a topic that that I it's a lot of what I got out of the book, which is like you said, there's so much ignorance that drives a lot of this. Um, you said you didn't want your children to, um, you know, to be to be a certain way to be to be ignorant or to not have the knowledge or to not have discussed or thought about these certain ideas. You know, I it makes me think. Uh, I watched the uh, Republican debates yesterday and, and uh, Senator Tim Scott said, you know, the, what makes us such a great country is that we have faced our demons or something like this head on is what he essentially said. And I, and I just could not have disagreed anymore. You know, I just thought we have, we have utterly failed to do that. You know, I went to Ireland and they have these uh, I mean, you can see the, uh, the, the history of their suffering is really put on display. They, um, you know, and I read that uh, Germany also does this really well, for example. We have never done anything like that. I, I think that we have never, you know, we have never done anything for reconciliation between, uh, you know, the races that have suffered in this country. We have never, um, you know, I just don't think we've done, I've never, I don't think we've faced that head on the way that he described uh, I think I think that we have largely avoided it and people still continue to be scared to talk about it. And so it's difficult, you know, when you're trying to, you know, advocate for a certain way, you're advocating, uh, you know, in a way that the other group is ignorant to even the, the pieces of knowledge or the things that you've learned in our history and the things that are our cultural things that we share, because they're afraid to talk about those things. They're afraid to uh, engage in those difficult conversations that Angie Thomas really laid out for us in the book. I mean, there were so many difficult conversations that I, and I'm sure all of us have, have kind of had in our lives that were tough on us and tough on the person we're talking to because we're trying to find common ground and we're trying to share some kind of a unique experience that informs us. And uh, I, I was, I was blown away by that part of the book because we are it's 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 a just a complex topic that is a little scary for some people to really dive deep into so sticking with you Stephen, what is the value in reading books that might be considered offensive by some i think uh i guess the i guess i think the value is probably the same as the books that are inoffensive you know i'm just trying to learn something just trying to uh, you know, trying to come up with most what's most likely correct or what's uh, most most accurate and trying to make good judgments. I mean, whatever it is you're trying to get out of a book, certainly that's those are the things that I try to get out of it. You know, something that uh, I don't know, helps me understand better or helps me to act better or helps me to um, make better decisions, you know, or uh, gain some wisdom uh, from some of these folks. But I think that you those the same things happen with banned books as they happen with with any books, you know, that, that aren't banned, um, potentially. So I, th I don't think that it's, uh, I think maybe it's unique value is maybe that's where you will find some fringe ideas that you can consider, you know, um, that maybe you wouldn't have considered should you, should you have, um, left those types of books off your reading list. What about you, Allison? Uh, it's interesting. I was just, it was, I just saw this on Instagram. Speaking of social media, it was Bell Hooks's birthday a few days ago. And there was a, her talking about how, you know, she 
reads plenty of white guys and she doesn't understand why they don't want to read what she has to say if only out of nosiness Mm. (laughs) and I just thought that was so funny that she could have humor about it and she said you know she reads she's from she lives in she lived in the bible belt and read a lot of evangelical Christian literature and people would ask her why do you do that and she's like well I want to know what millions of people think and I think that's that's the point, right? For me, I read books, many books I choose to read because I get to learn something that otherwise I would have no access to without asking really pointed questions of people I don't know very well, which seems uncomfortable and not respecting boundaries. So I get entree into these worlds and I learn so much. And there's tons of data that supports that reading grows compassion and not only for everyone else, but for myself. And I, I just, I find that incredibly powerful. Ron. Yeah, I, I completely agree. As a matter of fact, when they were talking, I was just sitting and thinking when I was in college, all right, I like girls. I wanted to actually get to know more girls. And so when I was in college, I would read whatever they read. I wanted to understand their thinking, their, you know, the, the things that kind of fuel them. And, and so I read, like, if I saw a girl read a book, I was in the library getting that book or in the bookstore getting that book. But I feel that way about people in general. I want to know people. I want to understand people. And if there's something that is not in my world, um, I want to read it just because it not only expands my thinking, but it expands my understanding of other people. And I think that that's the tool that we give people when we give them the opportunity to peer into a 15 year old black girl uh, in the projects. You know, I mean, if that's not your world, there's a way of thinking because you changed because you understand there's some commonality there. There's some humanity there. And and I think that that's what these books get to do. You know, and, I, and I'm, that's exciting to me. For Allison, you're the writer here. What effect should an author's intentionality versus the reader's interpretation have when discussing book bans? Um, I that's a really interesting question. Since I don't think we should ban books, I don't think it matters like what they intended and what the reality because I don't think we should do it at all. Um, I guess if an author's intention is incendiary, that's something that I've used incendiary twice. I get some kind of like gold medal for the day. Um, <laughs> but I just spell it yeah okay um I am so I I don't I don't think we should ban books period is that an answer it is an answer okay (laughs) Ron yeah I, I I completely agree but I think um I feel this way in my classroom too the more my students were uncomfortable the more I liked it you know I think that's where you, that's where your growth comes. So so even even though the um, the author's intentionality might have been completely different from the, the the reader's experience, that's good. You know, the more you can make somebody uncomfortable, the more you can make them stretch. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I love that. I love that. So, Stephen. Well, I guess uh, thinking of the question, I think that the the intentionality of, of the author, that's all that they can control. So first of all, I think that's all that they're responsible for. That's all we can hold them to account about. That's all that we can, you know what I mean? In terms of like 
the association of their work with them, their intentionality is all that they can control, you know, no matter what, what the particular outcome is. But, uh, you know, I, you know, kind of like the intention, the intention of the reader, though, has does have some kind of relationship. I You talked about the 48 laws of power and, you know, you, you know, your particular want to, I don't know, potentially learn something that uh, may be used against you, right? Or maybe whatever the case is. I, I bought a book um, out here. In, you'll only find this book in Vegas, by the way. It's at the Gambler's General Store, but it's a book. And it is 500 page long. It's it's called Cheating at Gambling. Right? <laughs> I bought this book. My family came up in casinos, but I bought this book. And so people will see this book on my shelf and they will be like, they will think I am just, you know what I mean? Like a scoundrel or something. But but no, this is not the case. I just don't want to be cheated. You know what I mean? Like I've also worked in casinos. I, I used to deal poker. Like there's been some people cheating. You know what I mean? And I ain't, I ain't having it. You know what I mean? But uh, I guess there is some some uh, also intersection with the intentionality of the the readers as well. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, but you, you can't hold an author to account for that. Yeah, and you can arm yourself, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So now let's talk about today's band book. I know Allison's excited about this. <laughs> Published in 2017 and inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, the Hate You Give tells the story of Star Carter, a 16 year old girl who navigates between her poverty-stricken neighborhood and the wealthy suburban prep school she attends. When she becomes the sole witness to a police shooting of her friend Khalil, an unarmed suspected drug dealer, it brings up issues of racism and police violence in her community. Stephen, you are one of the biggest readers that I know, possibly the biggest reader of all of us here, but you usually don't do these types of shows. What prompted you to say yes when I asked you to discuss this book? Well, um, uh, during uh, after George Floyd was murdered, I was asked by my uh, my sister in law, "Hey, could I could could I speak on Zoom to uh, her kids and also like her kids' uh, friends uh, and their family uh, during this? They live up in Minnesota, and I agreed." For the same reason that I'm agreeing now, which is we cannot fear talking about these difficult topics. We we have to be open to it, even open to the disagreement, even open to, you know, whatever that is, uh, talking about it. Um, we have so much friction in our society, in our country, amongst amongst each other. And even talking about these difficult things and disagreeing with them respectfully is 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 a really, um, is a good, just a real good way of being decent to each other and of, and of uh, having a, a good proper interaction to try to, to try to, to try to mend the relationship that, uh, you know, the history has brought to us today. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, super important, incredibly important book. I also think when I think of this book too, what it reminded me of is I, uh, the, one of the things we talked about in here too was the music of uh, oh gee the, the song all right not Tupac but the oh, song yes. is all right. um and he was and it's and this is a, this was the kind of the the theme song for George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, Kendrick Lamar's uh, uh, song and so I I think of that song as related to the George Floyd protests 
the way I think of this book as being related to in in the same way as literature is to that those protests. It is maybe the most prominent work of fiction that addresses these um, issues of race relations in America over the last you know decade. I'm excited to to read it and learn learn from it. And to that point, the first time I read this book was before the George Floyd incident. And it was a different experience because reading it this time, the possibility of hope in the outcome being different in, you know, during the trial, reading it the first time, there was absolutely no question how it was going to end. But this time, even though I knew what the, you know, I, I knew the story already, I knew the outcome, but there was no semblance of hope the first time. Now I feel like we're in a world where we can, we can hope that the outcome will be better. So it's not a huge amount of progress, but it is something and it's significant. And, and I think that this book and that incident, it's all part of the same movement of letting people know, making people aware of what is happening in the world. So I, I'd like to hold on to that little bit of progress. I read it afterwards and I certainly felt the way you did on the second reading, which was, I was unsure of what that indictment would bring. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe because of that small bit of progress that right. saw there. Yeah. So Ron, gotta, I, you don't usually do these shows either. So I, I have the same mm -hmm. question for you. Why did you agree to do this? <laughs> you know what, again, I like stretching and doing things that are outside of my comfort zone. Clearly, this is one. But I also think that the subject matter was one that, um, where I have thoughts. You know, I have um, a different kind of understanding and experience uh, in that I, I have been pulled over by the police for no apparent reason. I have had to sit on my hands in the ice while a dog destroyed while well, they destroyed my car and 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 I couldn't explain why they said that they were you know that they that the dog smelled drugs when they were I, I, nobody does that um I mean I've had these experiences and so I felt very connected to the characters and especially at that age feeling wronged you know and and so like you all I mean I, I, on, your, on your second reading Stevens first um, my question in reading the book is going to be, where is, where is the hope? Where is the solution? It's easy to talk about the problem. Where is the solution? And, and I think it, part of the solution is, is this, what we're doing right now is having a discussion. As, as Stephen was saying, talking to uh, uh, the children that, that are near him to have the, the discussion. Things only get better if you can shine light on it. And so that's why I was happy to be involved in this today, so. And Allison, you jumped at the opportunity to discuss this book. Why is that? Oh, I love this book. And I read it for the first time before George Floyd's murder as well. And it's interesting, Tanya, I hadn't thought of that different because of course, when I read it, I was like, oh no, star, <laughs> don't. You know, like, this is not going to go well for you. Um, for me, I love this book because so many reasons, but I thought it was such a great book about code switching. And it was the best book I had ever read about that. And it blew my mind how 
seamless Angie Thomas makes it and how she, you know, talks about Garden Heights star and private school star and, and all these different manifestations of herself. And I thought it was brilliant. And Ron, you talking about like, you know, what's the hope? I think for me, that's the hope too. in the book is that she becomes star at the end of the book and she stops like being less and wearing, shrinking herself. We are wearing the mask. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I understand. Uh, and I don't know too many people who, who get to too many people of color who don't in some way, shape or form wear a mask at some point or, or learn to be bilingual in some way. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't think of anybody that uh, doesn't have to, you know, straddle that. that right. That, feel that. compelled to do that as a means of protection. Exactly. Not, not as a means of being phony, but as a means of protection. Exactly. You don't always feel safe. That's right. Yeah. And I thought this book did such a such a beautiful job of showing mm -hmm. that. that it was there not, are it's so not many layers, phoniness. don't you think? So many layers yeah. to this book. It could have just been a simple book about seeing a police shooting and what do you do about that? What will the outcome be? But mm -hmm. there are themes of identity and friendship and her, like she's also conflicted. Right. He was not this, you know, beautiful gem of a person who never did anything wrong. He right. may have been a beautiful gem of a person on the inside, but he did bad things. And there are layers to understanding why he did them, what that means. Shouldn't his life still be valued as, as a human being, whether he did bad things or not, all of that. Right. Yeah. I thought she did a wonderful job of actually developing each of these characters. I mean, and, and, and giving them all their layers. Um, and I th thought about like the character Kenya. That was she was an interesting character to me. Um, you know, there was something. Uh, there was like that Haley and, and Kenya had some similarities. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. but you watched uh, Kenya's growth and the ability to just be able to say I'm sorry, or to be able to acknowledge that 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 uh, that Star was doing the right thing. I, I thought there was uh, you know th there was some very interesting uh, you know characters that were probably um, in a lot of other stories wouldn't have been as important, you know, so. And I have to say that as a biracial female, I saw a lot of my own struggle in this character, even though she's, she's not mixed, but she is living in two different worlds and having to, like, you don't really belong anywhere. Yeah, she didn't belong in the black community and she didn't belong in the white community. And I absolutely understand that you are an other everywhere. Right. And I thought right. she handled that beautifully. Yeah. And, and I think it's funny because we're on the 10 year anniversary of Black Lives Matter right now. Um, and so we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about, you know, very much our present. Right. But. but there is a timelessness about this as well. It's, there's it's timely, but it's also timeless. Um, and I talk about music a lot when I talk about those kinds of things, like like Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." You could literally listen to that song right now, and it could you, you're just changing the wars out. But everything else, you know, everything else is very much about right now. And I felt that way reading this book. Like, okay, this book could have been 30 years ago. And I pray that it's not going to be so uh, recognizable to, to to us 30 years from now. So, you know, but there's a timelessness about this story. 
And so I completely get what you're saying about being able to identify. So before I read this book the first time, I had heard rumors about the reasons it was banned and why people disliked it. Did you have those same preconceived notions, Stephen? And what did you, what were you thinking made the book so polarizing to the point that it was banned? So I, you know, I did not have a feeling that uh, at the end of this book, I was, you know, I was kind of in disbelief that this book was uh, banned so widely or whatever, because I, I thought I actually finished it maybe uh, this morning, you know, maybe five or six hours ago. And so I sat and I thought, and I thought, what are the, what are the large themes that this uh, book is trying to uh, convey or trying to, trying to suss out? And I mean, what I, what I kind of came toward, and, you know, certainly we all well, we have our opinions on these things, but I thought she, the star, and this is one of the timeless uh, parts of this book is that star is throughout this and the entirety of this book being pushed in two different directions and feeling and, and feeling like she's uh, needs to be either incredibly radical about this, very militant about it, or does she try to work through with the system and try to go through that way? You know, she's struggling with that, dealing with that little part. And I think back to, I think back in history, one of the themes of history that this book really captures that really always interests me is that, is that dynamic between um, the radical and then the pragmatist groups, right? Think of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Think of Lincoln versus, uh, oh, geez, what's, what's Web, that? Webster? Webster? Not Webster, but no, I was thinking of the, uh, the one who ended up, he ended up martyring himself and he went to, uh, he went to, uh, Oh, geez. He went to the gallows. He went to, yeah, what, I forget what his name is. John Brown. Sorry, yes, John Brown. Yeah. You know what yes. I mean? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the radical right. versus the pragmatist and any sure. of these issues. Sure. Um, and I and I, what I thought was that that was one of the issues that this book dealt with. And I thought what she comes to in the end when they try to compare the speaker uh, to a gun and she she's being told that this is your weapon is what she comes to is that peaceful protest civil disturbance without the violence is the is the is for her her right way of doing this this is what this book comes to the conclusion of with star i don't know what what book two will pretend but this is what it comes to who has a problem with that you know i just i just i was kind of blown away by this right and the other the other thing that that i thought of was also this uh thing theme that they had and it kind of just switched kind of right at the end of this book too was right was this culture of um the culture of like anti-snitching and stuff right and so then it gets to the end of this book too and people will have this concern that this book i'm certain that that was the reason why this is largely banned is because they, they think of this as this really anti-police book without probably having read it i'm sure but they get to the end of this and they find that the um that the danger in their local society, their little piece of the world here, um, they need to talk to the cops too. And they choose to talk to the cops and say that, um, to say who started the fire and, and, and make themselves safe by doing that, you know? And so they, they struggle with that, these difficult issues, but they come to this conclusion that I, that I don't find to be some kind of extreme conclusion. You know, I, I don't find to be a reason to ban any of this. I find it to be, uh, I don't know. I find it to be uh, 
something that we all struggle with when we're thinking about these issues. This is this is a very this is a great portrayal of, of our own internal struggles that we when we do, when we think about these issues. And I don't it think felt very that, real, didn't it? Sorry, it felt very real, didn't it? Oh, very real, very real. I've had some of these exact same conversations. I was just like, oh my goodness, like she she captured so well some of the the difficult uh, conversations and feelings about comments and, you know, uh, and also about how extreme you should go for, for your, for issues that are important to you and, and how you should, how you should try to do those things. I mean, you know, I, I, like we talked last time, you know, my family went to Standing Rock when that was all going down and like my brother, he was, uh, he went up there to, to raise hell, you know, but the, the elders of the, the reservation, um, they they did not want that. They wanted it to be done in a certain way, and so they steadied the hand of my brother. And my you know my brother was uh, you know he he understood that and and went with the way that that community wanted them to go. You know what I mean? So it's just you know everybody struggles with that. Yeah, so I, I found it wonderful. Yeah. How about you, Ron? You know, um, it's interesting that. Uh, you, you, you talked about the, some of the other stories within the story, and and I was sitting here thinking about um, the power of Uncle Carlos, the power of of her father, and and these families that were really whole families. And I think so often we watch the news or hear the propaganda, you don't see these, you know, black men being involved like they were in the characters in these books. And I thought that was so important because so many of my friends and family are just that. And even if they have, you know, uh, uh, other challenges, they're, they're there for their families. And I think that was an important thing too, that if, if there's a narrative that's out there about deadbeat dads and stuff, this book would also be uncomfortable for somebody who, uh, who doesn't ever hear about that. You know, I thought that, that was an, another interesting um, piece to the to to this story. So I don't know. Did y'all see that or hear that, or, or was it just me and and my, uh, you know? No, I definitely did. <laughs> okay. Certainly. You know. What about you two? Okay. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I thought also that I just googled why it's banned and it said racism and anti-police views because I wondered if it was also Mavs you know, talking about the Panthers and the pledge and all the, like, I wondered if those just mainstreaming history um, and that it's coming from the strong father figure. Like if that made people uncomfortable, that he's funneling his rage and frustration with the system into social justice and right. star does the same thing when the speaker is her way of, when she speaks her truth, you know, like, I mean, to me, that's why the book is banned because it makes people uncomfortable this idea of speaking truth to power there are there are the usual reasons which are oh it says a bad word or there's vulgarity in it mm -hmm. which is foul language which is on par with most ya books there is nothing particularly harsh in the language for this and then there's also the those few people where it's like one person gets the entire you know community banned from this book because one person protests that this book is trying to indoctrinate the youth against the police like 
I didn't get that from this book at all. No. I mean, I feel like this book went out of its way with Carlos and his and what he and the struggles that he went through. And then at the end that he sides with Star, that he's willing to get suspended to speak his mind to his peers. Like I and I yeah, I didn't feel like it was anti-police. I thought it was just like about people and some of them were police officers. And to me, it felt like it's showing that there are multiple layers from everyone's right. perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not just one black or white issue. Mm -hmm. Right. I thought Angie Thomas took great care, actually. She did. With that. And with the white characters, like we had the boyfriend and Haley, you know, it's like, right. okay, we got both. <laughs> we would just get Haley, which also right. would have been fine. Like, no, no, no. The balance, the, balance was, <laughs> the, the balance was important. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Maya was important, you know, having you yes. know the, the, the Asian character, you know, she was so very important to this. And, and I don't know why every time she came up in the book, I end up smiling. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that child. I like the character, you know. So, yeah, that's that's you're I right. did too. showing the diversity. Yeah. And everybody made mistakes. There, there was yep. no perfect character in this. No, indeed. indeed. And I like that we got to see Haley, just her general sort of non-concern with anyone's feelings you know wasn't just star it's also right. mia right. and just right. just this kind of general like oh it's a joke you know i think we're all very used to people like that when they're called out on their behavior oh it's just a joke why can't right. you have a sense of humor you know it was right. important to see that yeah and we all know somebody who's very self self-absorbed too so <laughs> So, yeah. Can we just go back to not thinking about any of this? Right. <laughs> exactly. Ugh. Pictures of Emmett Till, gross. You know, it's just like, so bad. So, and that she felt Alice confident said, in that. Right. Oh, my God. That she was able to say that out loud in front of people and not yeah. feel any kind of way about it. <laughs> no. You were going to say something funny. Yeah, I, I just want to know, because I know you had such a powerful and emotional reaction to your book, what was it? Oh, to this book? What was my yeah. I just, I just, I love it. I love Star. And, and like, I'm reading it as a white woman, but I, I think it is that kind of timeless narrative because most of us move through the world and have to navigate spaces that we don't feel safe in. And how do we do that? And how do we stay true to ourselves? And, um, just that kind of hypervigilance. Like she's she's so relatable because how do we become vulnerable to people? How do we share ourselves with people if we don't even know who that is? And I, and I just felt like she had all these, she has a wonder, she has a wonderful parents, you know, great brother, little brother, also nice, you know, a nice boyfriend, a nice, like, Carlos, she has all of the support. It doesn't mean life isn't complicated and that you aren't, and that if you are really engaged with life, it's like I said, it's uncomfortable. Like, what do I do now? How do right. I find a way forward? Especially at that age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't read a lot of, obviously, I don't read a lot of YA books. You know, so this was kind of refreshing for me and from that standpoint as well. But I was curious, have you all seen the movie? Yes. Okay, I haven't. I was movie. waiting till after we're done talking to watch the movie because I just want to focus on the book because it's the one that was banned. Yes, I saw right. it. <laughs> do, you, do, you do you recommend the movie? I did. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was well done. 
Like, okay. obviously, it's still a movie of a book, but I thought it was its heart was in the right place. And I think Angie Thomas was quite involved and you can feel oh. that like it's a, I think a fairly, you know, accurate adaptation. Okay. All right. I was, I'm curious. I was curious. I, I, yeah. I'm I'd a, be curious to see what you think of it. Like yeah, after and, you see it. And like Tanya, I, I, I wanted to wait until, you know, after this conversation to, uh, well, you're also like Stephen. You finished this morning. <laughs> um, actually, Stephen, I finished um, three days ago. Okay. And, but 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 full disclosure, I discovered something about myself. I was like, lately, I haven't been reading as much, and um, I ended up getting some reader glasses. Oh. And discovered that a lot of it's just the fact that. I can't see anymore. I was, in <laughs> I was straining. And once I actually put these glasses on, I blasted through the book and enjoyed every minute of it. And I was like, okay, so I guess I appreciate, this is another thing that you all have given me is uh, I, I, I feel like reading another book right now. So, hey. If I have accomplished <laughs> nothing else this week, I am satisfied with that. There you go. There you go. I'm back. <laughs> Thomas completed the second uh, book in the series or I, I believe she did. I think it focuses on the relationship between seven and Maverick, but I haven't read it. Okay. Haven't okay. either on the come up, I think. All right. That's great. That's great. So what did you all learn from reading this book? And we can start with Stephen here. You know, I, I, I guess it, I don't know if I would say learn, but it just reinforced some things that I kind of already felt, which is, which is just that, <laughs> I mean, race relations in America are difficult. Race relations in America are difficult to talk about, to think about, to convey to each other. Uh, like you said, there were so many different characters that, and, and we all are, all of us in society, right, are just along this whole spectrum of, I don't know for against a particular certain parts of this it's just it's just such a complicated thing to settle in on it's just and they she's demonstrated that so well because you would have you know the dad you know the the, the militant dad you know that was in the black panthers and then you would have you know mom who's obviously no less loving but thought of raising her a different a little slightly different way right and and you had her herself struggling with being outraged to the point of violence and then trying to pull herself back and seeing if the seeing if activism was was the better way you know i just i think that that whole dynamic was really portrayed well and just reinforced for me um how essential it is to read these types of works because that topic is so difficult to talk about and so difficult to empathize with without works like this. I thought it really did that well for me. Were you already aware of the talk that happens in so many Black families with their children about how to deal with police? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if my mom ever had a talk with me, I think, but I, but I would, but I would bet you that that's, uh, that's similar for Native Americans. You know, I grew up on a reservation that they, we certainly had similar issues. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously not as much national attention on it, but some of the natives that live up in Minnesota, um, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of 
you know, make understand that that's more of an issue, not just for black people, but also for other other natives or for other minorities that live live in those communities. As well. Um, that they also feel similarly, you know. So, but my, I mean, I don't know. I, I'll tell you this. My mom certainly, like, she grew up. She came up in a time after Watergate, and so her trust of the government was at zero. You know, she was she she uh, you know she did work with like the American Indian Movement, which was a you know uh, which was a, almost like a Black Panther kind of a kind of a thing like a very extreme uh, you know group that was trying to do something but she was very worried for me um you becoming a cop and she she thought that at some point you're going to get into this profession and then somebody is going to ask you to compromise your ethics and some of you know your supervisors are going to tell you to do something corrupt or something wrong you know i mean i'm you know i'm very proud to say that that has not happened. You know what I mean? And, and I was worried about that too, because of her, her uh, concern about it, um, you know, and, and you would hear when I started becoming a cop, you would hear about the old times when they would do things like that, you know? And so, you know, I, at least, at least my department, I feel, you know, I, I, I can, with a straight face, I just can feel like my family will get a fair shake and be treated well. And you know what I mean? Um, and just and so, like hearing about involved black fathers, it's important to hear about that too. Mm, yeah, yeah. But I, but I, but also too, I, I, I will temper it by saying, I, I'm not at all confident that most police departments have a culture like that. You know what I mean? I think different departments have these different cultures. Um, I just happen to thankfully be in one that I, that I really um, am proud of. I'm grateful for that. What about you, Allison? Were you aware of the talk? Okay, I was like, what? what's the question? Which question, question right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. Um, and I, I have a variation of the talk, like, you know, when you're with your Black friends, if you're involved, if you have an attraction with the police, shut up, do what they ask, because you're not going to be the one who gets trouble gets abused you know so don't feel confident that you won't be causing trouble for other people um so it's not the same but I just think it's important to have an awareness that the people you're with are more vulnerable than you yeah that's absolutely important and so I I think that in itself is a reason for people to read this book and have the understanding that there are just different circumstances for different people and it's not your fault, but you should be aware of it. And this is how you handle it. Awareness is power. Yeah. yeah and it makes you a better friend. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, you know, I will say this too. Um, I told you about being pulled over that time between driving between DC and Baltimore and, you know, and it, you almost feel like, Oh, haven't I grown out of this? I mean, I, I know you pulled me over when I was a teenager. I know you pulled me over when I was 20 but in my forties, you know, you're still pulling me over and why I'm sitting here driving with an elderly man. And, and now you got both of us laying out here, but I will tell you this. I remember my takeaway from that day um, was the reason that, that I was told that I was pulled over is pulled over is because I was driving with an obstructed view. And I had been in a hotel that had the parking, the valet ticket was hanging on the, the rear view mirror. And it was, 
half an inch beneath the actual mirror itself. And that was the obstructive view. What it did though, was it allowed me to take that ticket and go back to my classroom and talk to my students. And that was our having to talk mm. was that was our talking about, you know, how you stay professional, how, even though there, you know, this guy is red faced and spitting in my face talking, I've got to stay even. And having those talks with my students was, was for me to take away. It was, okay, this is why this is a good experience. This, this is why this happened. So I can have this life lesson and hopefully share it with these kids. Um, I think the book in some way does that for a whole lot more people than I ever could do in a classroom. It gives people an opportunity to have that conversation. And I think that's huge. And, and I thought it was beautifully crafted, beautifully done. And, and I hope that there's some family right now using this as a tool to actually prepare, you know, some kids to, for, uh, for that moment, if, and when it happens. So, and I'll, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it kind of reminded me, um, uh, also with, with Allison talking that when I talked to those kids, for example, in Minnesota, that was one thing that they had asked me is like, Oh, what should I, what should I do? Right. If I was, if I saw a police officer interacting with somebody and I thought something was wrong or like something was not right or whatever, you know, and, and you're right. And that the advice I gave them and, and it's something else. And I would just, you know, request that you share with them is just be a good witness. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, just like those folks that were, were there with, uh, with George Floyd and with what they did and the power of that. I mean, I think they actually gave the, uh, um, the woman who filmed that, uh, like a Pulitzer Prize or something like this, right? I mean, because of the, the powerfulness of just having uh, borne witness to to that and uh, sharing that with, with the world. But no, I, I, it just kind of reminds me of that too. I hope so too, you know, but that's, yeah. Ron, earlier you talked about the potential to censor the book for or not this book in particular, but books in general for kids that are too young for it. You know what? Uh, and uh, you asked me what I got out of this conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, Allison, you helped me change my vote. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what these conversations do. Yes. <laughs> they help yeah. give you different perspectives and consider Absolutely. different ideas. <laughs> Hey, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, I, yeah, I do think an opportunity to have conversations uh, and to actually discuss it with kids at different ages is great. So, so thank you. So, after reading this book and after having this conversation, Stephen, what are the reasons that people should read *The Hate You Give*? What do you, wh why do you think it's important to keep this book in particular available to the public? Because the conversation about race in America is not behind us. It is something that is right in front of us that we got to talk about. This book does it wonderfully. Uh, no matter your particular perspective on it, I think that you will find a character, you will find a uh, an impulse in the book that um, is sympathetic to how you feel. And you will find the complications uh, near and far to that issue. Uh, so I guess that that's what I would say is just that is that that conversation is not behind us as much as uh, some of the world likes to try to try to shove that aside and, and say, let's not talk about it anymore. We must talk about it and we must um, start 
having those difficult conversations. And this is a wonderful place to start. How about you, Allison? I mean, Stephen said it really well. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I, I think this is a modern classic. Like, I feel like this is a book that we will refer back to and people will read, not only because it'll hold up because of the timelessness of it, but it is also a real view into what was happening. And like you say, Ron, I hope it's not still happening <laughs> in 50 years. Like, I hope we look back. I mean, that's how I feel about gun violence in general. I really hope that we look back on this time and think, how did we let this madness go on so long for our children and our citizens? And so I hope this feels historical in that way. And I did think the book spoke so eloquently to the trauma Star suffered, not only because of racism, but because of gun violence and the death of her two friends. And I think that message is an important one. Like, the scars that we're giving our children, they'll never go away. True. And Ron, we'll give you the last word. Okay. Um, it's funny. A lot of times when I read, I try to read fiction and then I read a, fi a nonfiction. I read a fiction and nonfiction. Trying to keep a little, some, some balance. And I remember like one time reading Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and then reading Shogun by James Clavell. And discovering it, kind of, it was kind of the same story, and one made me want to understand the other better. Um, and I'm hoping that that happens with this too, that someone reads this fiction and they want to understand the history better, um, because there's, you know, because we can't afford to toss our truths away and, you know, calling it critical race theory and woke and all that kind of stuff, and 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 making it so. Um, so hard for people to actually shine light on what is real. And, and I hope that this book will help fuel the momentum to, to get people to actually deal with what is real and understand each other better. So the yeah. end, that's all I got. <laughs> Very well said. Well, thank you all for your wonderful input and for wrapping up this year's series with just such a powerful discussion. Before we wrap up, Ron, where can people find you and support your work? I am doing, uh, my, my, the project that I'm working on right now is called The Soul Symphony. Uh, it's going to be uh, February the 16th in uh, uh, 2024 uh, at the King Chapel at Morehouse College. Uh, there's an orchestra that's backing five uh, soul and jazz artists. And, and my hope is that it becomes one of those things that we film for a documentary and, um, but, but it allows for multi, uh, for different generations to appreciate the same music. So, so if be on the lookout for the soul symphony and you can go to the soul symphony.com. Yeah. Excellent. Allison. The easiest place to find anything about me is my website, allisonshelton.com, A-L-Y-S-O-N. S-H-E-L-T-O-N. And I'm on Instagram a lot at by Allison Shelton. And those are the spots. Thank you, Tanya, for creating this space and for bringing us together. This has been a real treat. For me as well. Steven, you don't usually have anything to promote, but I do have the floor <laughs> just in case. I don't. I was like, well, where can you reach me? I was like, 911. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can I, hope, <laughs> I hope I don't have to reach you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs>
Well, that's it for this year's Banned Books Conversations. Again, I want to thank everyone who recommended books for the series. Keep those suggestions coming. Many thanks to J.P. Butler, Charles Larson, Mike Burton of Genuine Chit Chat, Veronica Clash, and Susan Jocelyn for their assistance and support behind the scenes. Thank you to the ladies of FemOn, Rhea, Ada, Jess, and of course, Allison, who let me hijack the schedule all week as a sisterly form of active activism. To that note, I want to thank my brother, Tony Farina, and Dave Horrocks for sharing this content on the Comics in Motion feed as well. Thank you to Marshall.edu for being such a great resource by listing banned books and their challenge history. Thank you to all of our amazing guests. Success would not be possible without you. And to the audience, thank you for listening. More importantly, thank you for reading.